Well, it is good to be back. For those of you who don't know, we were on vacation for a couple, we, we took two Sundays off. Uh, we had Brent Johnston preach the first Sunday, and then we were actually back here on Sunday, but, but Bob was preaching, and I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the sermons. Uh, really enjoyed being able to get away for a little while, and uh, very purposely didn't think about church stuff. So, you know, sometimes, I mean, this is so much a part of not just my life, but Jen's life, our family's life, that it's easy for conversations always just to drift into church conversations. So we were very purposeful in trying not to talk about church stuff. And we went to Denver, and it was so good to be back in Denver. I uh, grew up in Denver, uh, spent 30 years of my life, 31 years of my life in the North Denver area. My family, all my immediate family's there, so my brothers, sisters, mom and dad, it was so good to get to reconnect with them and build that relationship. And then we went on Saturday, we went up to uh, Cheyenne, where we spent the next six years after we left Denver, and served in the church there, and Jen's got a big portion of her family that lives there, so it was really good to connect with her aunt and uncles, and uh, some nieces and nephews and sisters, nephew, I should say nieces, nephew. And uh, just family members there. And then we, after that, we went to a dinner with a bunch of Cheyenne Berean church people. And that was great. I got to uh, reconnect with a mentor pastor of mine that I absolutely love that gave just absolutely changed how I viewed ministry philosophy. Then we went back to Denver and spent some more time with my family and my brothers. I got my brothers into mountain biking. So while we were there, they had overscheduled mountain biking. And uh, I mean, it was like, my brother, my older brother was like, hey, it's time to go to Erie Park. Hey, it's time to go to this park. And actually wiped out pretty bad. Uh, bruised my ribs. It still hurts really bad to sneeze. Uh, so it was absolutely amazing. But you know, it's one of those overscheduled vacations where you get back and you need a vacation from your vacation. Like, I could sleep an extra couple hours every day after that. And so we came back, and we were pretty fried. Oh, and then on the way back, my kids were ready to be home. They were done. My parents, they slept in my parents' office on the floor. So they were, like, longing for their bed. So on the way home, I had never experienced this with our kids. Usually, you know, they're begging to stop to go to the bathroom. And every time there was an opportunity, they like, all right, you guys ready to pull up? Go, keep going, Dad. Uh, so... I'd never seen that before, but they were ready to be home. We are all ready to be home, and we are all very tired. And so on that Sunday, we started driving to church, and my mind started to re-engage with church type of thought, and I started to almost feel overwhelmed. Have you ever had that feeling when you're starting to re-engage work, and you're like, man, there's so much to do, and you start to feel a little bit overwhelmed. And so I started to feel overwhelmed, and sometimes when you start to feel overwhelmed, you stop focusing in on God. You start focusing in on maybe your own stuff. And, and as I started to do that, different feelings started to creep back in. And sometimes there's feelings of inadequacy. Uh, for, for my personality type, I want to feel competent in, in everything I do. And anytime I feel incompetent, I like my, I'm just wrecked, right? And so we're coming back and these feelings start kind of and then I start to have this like doubt of like, Aaron, what on earth are you doing? What makes you think you could be a senior pastor? I've been here for four years now. Huh. 
But there's those feelings of self-doubt, and it starts to creep in. And I know it creeps in in all of our lives. And all of us sometimes feel this feeling of self-doubt. So we start pulling up, and I'm like, I don't even preach anymore. And then we started seeing started talking about conversation. And I started getting excited. I was excited to dive in and start preaching. And that night we were gonna I was teaching on Romans eleven. The, if you're not familiar with Romans, you know the first eleven chapters are theology, and then you've got four chapters of application. And I was getting excited about teaching that last chapter of theology. And so I started to get excited. And a big part of that was because I was engaging the congregation. And I started to remember that this is my assignment from God. And when you live out, when you step out in faith and live out that assignment God has given you, that you don't need to feel, you don't have to worry about feeling incompetent. Because I have to remind myself that no matter how incompetent I am, it is God who does the work. No matter how incompetent I am, God matures the church. God grows the church in maturity. So I don't necessarily have to worry about it depending upon me. And that started to feel good. The interactive started to feel good. And so then I started kind of like just thinking through our call. So I remember four years ago when, uh, how this all came about, just because some of you don't even know, I never even wanted to be a senior pastor. I at first started off as a youth pastor in Denver, and I loved youth ministry. I wanted to stay in youth ministry my whole life. I wanted to be one of those guys that were like in their 60s doing overnighters still. Uh, <laughs> and then I had kids, and I realized that wasn't going to work. And then I got my third. well, I was in my 30s when I had kids, and then I really realized that it wasn't going to work out that way. But, but I, I loved that, and I never wanted to be a senior pastor. And, and part of that also had to be with how senior pastors had been kind of modeled for me. So I didn't want to do that, and uh, the church that I was working for, I loved the church in Cheyenne. And I wanted to stay there forever. I just thought we'd retire there. It's the church that Jen grew up in. There's something really awesome and special about a pastor being in one place for 20, 30 years and getting multiple generations coming through. That was a dream of mine. And so working with that church, we finally decided that I'd become what was called a family pastor. That happened in 2017. And very quickly we realized that that was not where God calling me to be a family pastor. So I was out, I was a program director for a camp. I was still being the family pastor, but also doing part-time work as a program director for a family, for a camp. And uh, that summer of 2017, I had several different pastor friends of mine come up to me and say, hey, Aaron, there is a senior pastor position open in Shadron, Nebraska. I know you guys are all excited like Nebraska. That was my thought too. Shattering Nebraska. We think you should apply for it. And I told each one of them, uh, that's awesome. I don't want to be a senior pastor. But after the fifth one, I finally was like, and they did it all individually. I thought they had like gotten together and conspired against me. But they hadn't. They didn't know that the other ones were telling me the same thing. And so after about the fifth one, I was like, okay, okay. God, I'm getting it. You're calling me to something. You're calling me to something. So I went to our board of elders. I proposed to them. I went to the senior pastor. And we were at that church at the time. There was this weird transition because our senior pastor was retiring. 
I was actually a big part of hiring on the new senior pastor who was a good friend of mine. I was so excited to to work with this new senior pastor and and I talked to them and they were both like, sounds like this is where God's calling you. So we applied and there was an interim pastor up there and there were some other guys that knew a lot about that church up there and all of them told us, you're a shoo They're going to hire you, no problem. Like the interviews are just going to be a formality. And there was a, a one, two interview process and then a candidate process. We didn't even make it past the first interview. We didn't even make it past the first interview. And everyone so we gathered back together with the board of elders, and they're like, so what do you think, Aaron? Oh, throughout this whole process, God has taught me that he's calling me. I just don't know where. And every single one of them said to me, God's calling you something. So what we're going to do for you is we're going to give you two months. We're going to pay you for two months of your new job. Forget everything that you, all of your responsibilities at Cheyenne Green Church for the next months, your job is to find where God is calling you. Through that process, uh, found Calvary Bible Church in Flagstaff, and I applied. Larry and I had emails back and forth, and then I had a phone interview, and then we were called out to come preach. Not officially preach, come preach. I remember flying into Phoenix, driving up I'm just starting to feel like all those creaking things come back to me. What are you doing? You're not competent enough to do something like this. You don't know what you're doing. Not only that, but in Flagstaff, come on, you were born and raised in the front range. You know Cheyenne. There's the Berean Fellowship of Churches, the, the fellowship I belong to. You know everybody in that fellowship, and you're loved in that fellowship. You have a great support system in that fellowship. Why on earth would you, if you're being an idiot, don't go to Flagstaff? And then we stopped because, well, one of my kids had to go to the bathroom. So, that rest stop is beautiful. I can't remember the name of it, but you know, you've got the, the view of the mountains there. There's still some cactus. I remember stopping and letting them go and just taking the time out to pray. My anxiety started to feel started to feel better about it. I'm not sure that I wanted to go to Flagstaff. But I felt better. We got here and Juanita was the first one we met. Because we were staying at her house. And then we got to the congregation. And that first Sunday where I preached, I wasn't even a candidate. And that first week of the congregation, this is where God is calling us. We got the invite to come back and officially candidate. Just felt even better about it. I knew God is calling us here. And I knew what I was leaving behind. I knew I was leaving behind my family. I knew I was leaving behind. The, the front range, which was a place that I loved. I knew I was leaving behind a fellowship of churches that was an incredible fellowship. But God was calling me to And I'm so glad he stepped out in faith. Because I love you. I love our congregation. 
I love Flagstaff. Flagstaff, I will say this on the record, is way better than Denver. Way better than Denver. In fact, every time we drive back there now, like as I love the drive, I love going to the mountains. As soon as we start dropping down into Denver, I'm like, oh man, back here again. Love it. But Jen and I could have frozen up. We could have not stepped out in faith and followed our assignment. And I know that we would not be as joyful as we are had we not stepped out in faith. It is always better to step out in faith. And the way we step out in faith is to remember that God is faithful. If on I-17 I had pulled over and I had reminded myself of how I have a master's degree in biblical studies, remind myself that I've gone through a seminary, remind myself that I had so many years under my belt, remind myself of my great mentors, remind myself of all the credentials I had building myself up, I would have still felt anxious. I can step out in faith by reminding myself of God's faithfulness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 12. So we're into the Advent season, and uh, there's some controversy a little bit over Advent. Uh, we won't get too much into it. We're not a traditional church. So I think we have freedom when it comes to Advent. Uh, so we don't have to stick to all the traditions. We don't have to, you know, light our wreath, although we did have a wreath at one point. Uh, but we don't have to light it. We don't have. To, we don't even have to follow the color, the colors of the candles, right? So, we, since we're non-traditional, I think we can play. There's some, some some good things about tradition, and I think there's some good things about uh, following some of the traditions of Advent. But we don't have to follow any liturgical schedule. So uh, this week, as we talk about faith, I wanted to talk about Abraham at this time, known as Abram. So we find the story of Abram beginning in. Genesis 12. Now, to give you a little bit of background on Genesis 12, Genesis is not actually outlined by its chapters. We came along later on. Man came along later on, uh, and we wanted to make sense, so we started to number the whole Bible. So all of your chapters and your verses, I wouldn't call those inspired. So if you've ever thought the chapters and verses were inspired, sorry to burst your bubble, you're wrong. Those are not inspired. They came along later. In fact, a good practice, I think, is to try to ignore the verses and chapters and just read. You'll be amazed. Oftentimes, we kind of like contain ourselves by chapters and verses. Start reading. Find a Bible with no chapters and verses and read. You'll be amazed. But anyways, uh, so Genesis is actually outlined by what's called Toledo statements. So we have no chapters that kind of give us an outline, but God gave us another outline by Toledo statements. A Toledo statement is anytime you read, these are the generations of. So there are 12 Toledo statements in the book of Genesis. That is the natural outline for the book of Genesis. So it starts off with the generations of, or the first chapter is, of creation. So that's the first idea, the first chapter of, not the way we have it numbered, but the Toledo statement of creation. So we've got creation. Then you've got the fall. Then you've got man's rebellion. And, and you could break it up to more of like specifically man's rebellion up to the point 
of Noah. And you've got a worldwide destruction where God is done with man's sinfulness and rebelliousness, and he starts all over again with Noah. And then you've got uh, the continued rebellion. So even after Noah, there it, it is amazing how quickly man jumped right back into rebellion. And we've got chapter 11, where man's rebellion culminates in the Tower of Babel. Oftentimes we get the Tower of Babel wrong because we think it's about like them trying to build this tower up to God, but it's the city and the tower. And what's going on with the Tower of Babel is that there is a people group here. There, there are peoples that want to make a name for themselves, and they're going to do it by absolutely rejecting God, by rebelling against God, and doing everything on their own. So the city is a marketplace, and you can buy whatever you want in the city. You don't actually have to depend upon God. We might compare that today with the mall. Now, I'm not saying that malls are necessarily evil. I know some people like the malls. Uh, I don't, but, uh, but I won't, I won't uh, accuse you if you do. But that was what it was getting at. We don't need God because every material thing we have is right in front of us. The tower represented religion. We don't need God for morality. We can develop morality ourselves. We don't need God for wisdom. We can, de we can develop wisdom ourselves. You might compare the tower to today's academia or today's university. So we have essentially, without even realizing it, in our own culture, developed our own city and tower. In our own culture, we have developed a Tower of Babel story about Tower of Babel situation here. And so that is the generations of, and that's the story. It's man's continued rebellion against God. And then we get the Toledo statement that introduces us to a Abram. And God is going to do something new and something unique. It's not that he's going to wipe out the world again, but instead he's going to enact his plan of redemption. And that is going to come through Abram. So let's join in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so we got something new here. God's calling out Abram. We've got a new chapter in Genesis, and it starts off with this. Now the Lord said, so this term said here isn't just like God wanted to pick up a conversation with Abram. It wasn't like, hey, Abram, how are you doing today? Let's chat for a little bit. It wasn't even a suggestion. Like, you know what would be really cool, man? It would be if you just got up and moved. This was actually a command. The Lord said. Really, we could translate the Lord commanded. And it actually resembles his command, the Lord said, both to Cain and to Noah. So if you're not familiar with those stories, they come beforehand. And uh, Cain and Abel are the first two sons born to Adam and Eve. And they come and they offer sacrifices to God. Abel's was pleasing to God. Cain's was not. Cain gets jealous. His anger is stirred up towards his brother. And God says, the Lord, sorry, I should say, the Lord said to Cain, you must, sin is crouching at the door. You must master it, or it will devour you. 
So he gives them this warning, this idea that sin is going to control you. You must master it. Later on, we're going to learn that the way we master sin is by submitting it to God. You cannot master sin on your own. Oftentimes in the Christian circles, we think we can master sin. We think that we can control our sin. We think that if we just try hard enough, we'll be good enough. And that's a great way for sin to master you. But for all of us to come to the conclusion that we are slaves to sin, you are a slave to sin. I should say, for Christ, you were a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin. Have you ever wondered why you do the things that you hate to do? That one sin that absolutely gets you, that you feel so ashamed about every time you do it, and afterwards you swear to yourself, you'll never do it again. And yet, it comes back again and again. You can't master sin on your own. The only way to master it is to recognize you're a slave. And then, with that, so when you come to a place where you say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And then you put your faith and trust in Christ. He changes you from being a slave to sin to being alive together with him. And he actually begins to equip you to sin no more. So the best way to overcome sin is to no longer focus on the sin. Focus on God. After you talk about it, it's like the elephant in the room, right? Now what are you all thinking about? And no matter how many times I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant, what are you thinking about? And now I'm shouting like, don't think about the pink elephant. Just quit thinking about a pink elephant. And what are you doing even more now? Like you just can't get it out of your mind. It's the way it is with sin. When I try not to sin, when I tell myself, stop sinning, Aaron, stop looking after women with lust. Stop lusting after women. Stop lusting after women. Stop lusting after women. What's on my mind? Lust. So instead of looking at sin control, sin management, we recognize that Jesus paid the price for our sin. We no longer can be sin managers, and now my focus is going to be on Jesus. And the more I worship Jesus, the more I let his word transform my heart, the less I'm involved in sin I am. So I'm no longer thinking, quit lusting, Aaron. Instead, I'm thinking, God, you're so good because you forgive. God, you're so good because your creation's amazing. God, you're so good because you gave me your word. And I'm more focused on God than I'm on sin management. So that was one of the commands he gave. The Lord said to Cain. The other one is the Lord said to Noah. The Lord said to Noah, build an ark. Noah's like, build what? Build an ark. I'm going to make it flood. I'm going to wipe out all of mankind except for you, because you're the one righteous man left. So you and your family are going to be able to flood. This was kind of an audacious command to Noah. 
who didn't even understand what he exactly he was getting into. But it was a command. So Noah stepped out in faith. This is the same type of thing that's happening. So it is a command that's going to increase in difficulty. And oftentimes, I think the difficulty is left like we don't quite understand the difficulty that is coming to this. So here's the difficulty. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Now, your country is something you're familiar. It wasn't just like, I love the USA. It's everything that you are familiar with, right? So we could even think about leaving a region. Have you ever left one region for another region? I can think about leaving the front range for Flagstaff. Now, I'm lucky because the front range and Flagstaff are very similar areas, very similar in altitude, very similar in culture. Both have green chili, which I love. Uh, so, so I feel pretty lucky, but there's still differences between the two, right? There's still like roads that you're familiar with. There's still certain weather patterns that you're familiar with. So the land that you know, it's everything that you're familiar with. The taste, the touches, the sound, the smells, the language. Think about what he's leaving behind. I couldn't imagine getting up. We had Kubali here a couple months ago. She left Flagstaff to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. All of a sudden, she went from eating delicious green chili to bugs and bats. Stepping out in faith. That's, that's developing kind of used to a whole new culture. But that's one, that's one aspect of it. So he's going to leave everything he's familiar with and your kindred. So he's leaving his country and he's leaving his family behind as well. Your family are who knows you best, right? You, lo- you love your family. I love being together with my family. I miss my family. So he's asking him to leave his family. Now, oftentimes we think of this as kind of harsh. And we see that Lot actually came with Abram. And we kind of get this idea that it wasn't just that he was going to leave his family, but the idea is more that don't let your family hindrance your your obedience. Don't let your family get in the way of your obedience. And oftentimes we let our family get in the way of our obedience to Christ. There are certain times, certain things. I know even when I went back for Thanksgiving, I loved my family, but my family also, no one knows how to get under your skin like your siblings do, right? I mean, your, your, your brothers and sisters, or I should say my brothers and sisters, had 18 years to develop the perfect strategy to get under my skin. And it just comes back so naturally to them. I'll admit I'm probably the same way with them, right? But I know that it is so easy for me to start acting out of the flesh when my siblings are around. And, and the command here is don't let your family get in the way of obedience to God. It would have been really easy for me. One of the things I loved the most about being in Denver was seeing my nieces and nephews. I'm missing my nieces and nephews. But I can't let that hindrance or be a hindrance to my obedience to Christ. There are other ways people are struggling with their family. Some of you have family that want to disown you because of Christ. Saying, don't 
neglect your family, be a blockade against your obedience. It is better to obey God. So he's to leave his country, his kindred, and your father's house. Now for some people that might sound a little redundant, your father's house. But you have to understand, for that culture, his job was in his father's house. So he had roles, he had responsibilities, and he had security. His father was a wealthy man, he was going to inherit all that wealth. His father had a big plan, he was going to be a part of that plan. His father's house was his security. You might think of it as your job. How many of us find security in our job? There's no way I could leave because I don't have a job. There's no way I could leave. My job is my security. Now I'm not saying that all teachers stop and lose their jobs. But do you feel more secure in your job? Or do you feel more secure in Christ? Do you look for your job more for security? Or do you look for Christ more for security? So he's commanded to leave all that he's familiar with. He's commanded to leave his family, or not let his family become a blockade to his obedience to Christ. And he's commanded to leave the security. And then we've got the fourth part of the, the increasing command, and go to a land that I will show you. Man, I feel so lucky. God called me to Flagstaff, and, and he brought me to Flagstaff, and he, you know, it was easy for me to come here. Could you imagine you've got to leave all you're familiar with? You're going to leave behind your family. You're going to leave behind your security. And you don't even know where you're going. God's going to show you. Now later on, he'll tell the Israelites that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. So we know that God brought him to a good place. But he didn't know that. It could have been just one big burning trash pile for all he knew. He didn't know where he was. But he did have promises that God was going to give him. So God gives him this command, and then he gives him five promises and a perfect statement within these promises. And I will make you make of you a great nation. Not just a great people. And it's important for us to recognize the original audience in this section. So it is a historical book, it is a historical account, but Moses is writing it to the Jews who are going into, who haven't quite made it to the promised land yet. So they're not a nation yet. But here is a promise God has given them. But they'll be more than just a people, they'll also be a great nation. That is a promise that they can hold on to as they begin to leave Egypt for the promised land. The second promise, and I will bless you, meaning he's going to highly favor Abram. Promise three, and make your name great. And this is contrasted in chapter 11. The, the people of the Tower of Babel wanted to make their name great. So what did they do? They rebelled against God. They went things their own way and they decided we can do everything we want without God. And what God is saying here is if you truly want to have a great name, step out of faith. If you truly want to have a great name, follow the assignment God gives you. 
God has an assignment for every single person in this room. You might be facing a great name by rejecting God himself. God has a call for your life. Do you truly want to go? Step out and take follow God's call. So he's going to make his name great. And then we've got the purpose statement. So all of these five promises follow this or, or fall into this uh, purpose statement so that you will be a blessing. God is calling Abram out so that he may bless the rest of the world. God has established his church, the body of Christ, so that we would be ambassadors to the world and bring the world a blessing. Not so that we would shake our fist when we're mad about politics. Too often, Christians are known for their anger, not for their joy. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things happening in this world that are not right, that are not okay. But am I revealing God's goodness in the midst of it all? Or am I just shaking my fist at people being angry at them. God has created a church that we could be on mission for God. And hey, we know how it ends. We've been studying Revelation before we got into Advent. We know how it ends. We of all people have the most joy. Because we know the end. Then he goes on with these promises. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Some people get a little bit caught up on this. And I, what I would say is that because Abram is going to be the representative of God, when people curse him, it is as if they were cursing God. Because he is God's representative. So what's happening here is people see Abram, they see he's favored by God, they know that, that he is the representative of God, but they, they don't quite have the audacity to shake their fists and curse God. So they'll just curse Abram instead. And what, what God is saying here is they will be cursed themselves. But he will bless those who bless Abram because he is a representative of God. Then point five. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is saying here that through Abram, I am going to bless all of the world. And what we see here is that the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing is in Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing, that through Christ, the world could now be fully reconciled to God. This is what we would call a unilateral covenant. So God just made a covenant with Abram. It's a unilateral covenant, and what he's saying is, I'm going to make this happen. It's not an if-then covenant. It's not a bilateral meeting that God's setting it up like, hey, Abram, this is what you need to do, and if you don't do it, then I'm going to do these things, and, and I'm totally going to wipe you off the face of the earth. It's not that. God is taking Abram aside, and he's saying, this is what I will do. So what does Abram do? I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 12. He steps out in faith. He starts heading out, and God eventually brings him down to the land of Canaan. And then there's a drought in Canaan. And so he, he goes over to Egypt. And in Egypt, he recognizes that his wife is beautiful. And he's a little bit afraid. 
says to her, hey, Sarai, uh, you're beautiful. I don't want them to kill me so they can have you. So why don't you just tell everyone you're my sister? They go down to Egypt, and that's what happens. How many wives right now are like, what? If your husband did that to you, I mean, would you be like, I'm cool with this plan? It's great. How many of you would be like, grow a backbone, man? And how many husbands right now are like, wow, there's no way I'm letting anybody marry my wife and calling me the brother. No way. I would rather die. Here's Moses. Oh, sorry. Here's Abraham. The man God is going to use to bless the world. What's amazing about this is he doesn't change his plan. He's not like, oh man, Abram, you messed up. You done did mess up. I'm changing my mind. And then we continue to just walk through Genesis and you see Abram mess up after mess up after mess up. He does not live the perfect life. God gave his promise. God stuck to his promise. One thing about Abram is he had faith God's faithfulness. That faith is recognized God. So although he messed up, although he continually messed up, he would come back and recognize God. See this whole thing play out So I don't know exactly where you're at in your city. I don't know how jacked up you are. I don't know what kind of messed up background you have. I don't know if you've ever stepped out in faith once in your life. But I can tell you this. Your faith is not And if you're continually looking at your own life, never truly understand your faith. It is by reminding yourself God that despite how jacked up Abraham was, and despite how jacked up Israel became, God is faithful to his promise and brought about the world through this man who lived in Gath and through a lineage of Gath. We have faith, not because of us. Not because of how great we are, not because we're talented, not because we have enough knowledge. We have faith because he is faithful. He is faithful to his word, he is faithful to his promises. And in the darkest of times, when it seems like all is lost, we still look back remember he is Dear Lord, Thank you for the promises you gave. We thank you that you could have just wiped us all out. You would have been totally justified. Just wipe humanity off this earth. And yet you loved us with such a great love. That you remain faithful to us. That you even made promises to us. 
remain faithful. And yet you have more promises. And we know you'll fulfill, fulfill the future promises because you have fulfilled the past. We know your character, which you are faithful. In the midst of a chaotic world, we pray your name of